uh, you may be seated. And I would invite you this morning as we uh, prepare to, to listen to God's word read and proclaimed to turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we'll read verse 32 through chapter 5, verse 11 this morning. And as you turn to Acts chapter 4, uh, our text this morning has a lot of layers. Uh, but at the heart of them all, I've come to realize, is Cain's question to God in Genesis chapter 4, am I my brother's keeper? Uh, you may remember that's the question that Cain asked God after God asked him where his murdered brother Abel was. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Am I charged by God with caring for my brother, for, with protecting my sister? for working to keep them safe and to help them? Am I my brother's keeper? That's Cain's question. I'm hoping that we all say yes to that question. Yes, I am my brother's keeper. Uh, Jesus wants us to say yes to that question. In our text this morning, we're going to see what happens when the church does in fact say, yes, we are our brother's keeper. We will keep our brothers and our sisters. And we're also going to see just how seriously Jesus takes it when we take Cain's position, and say, no, I am not. Uh, so let's, let's get into it there. The, the points are on the wall. We're going to think about uh, the blessing of, yes, I am my brother's keeper. Open wide your hand. That's going to be from Deuteronomy 15. The judgment of, no, I am not my brother's keeper. And then finally, greatly respected. So four points instead of three, uh, but the sermon's not any longer, so don't worry. Uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Let's read through, and we'll read through verse 11 of chapter 5. Let's hear God's word. Uh, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Uh, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead 
And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thus far the reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless it to us now so that we can have ears to hear it, uh, minds to understand it, and hearts to believe it. Uh, Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher and may the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, the first thing I want to look at this morning is the blessing of yes. Uh, now remember, this story takes place after the apostles Peter and John were threatened by the same people, the Sadducees and the priests, who plotted and schemed the murder of Jesus. So uh, there's a lot of pressure that's starting to grow on the church, both on the congregation and even more specifically on the leaders of the congregation. And now I bring that up because the spiritually immature, emotionally immature response to pressure, especially when that pressure is life-threatening, is to shut down, close off, and lash out, right? I'm out, we're through, go away. Uh, and if it hadn't been for the rule of life, which the church had been practicing for a long time now, that probably would have been their response, uh, but it wasn't. Because when you frame your life around private prayer and corporate prayer, corporate worship, weekly Sabbath and sacrificial hospitality, those things are actually used by Jesus to change you. Jesus transforms you and the Spirit matures you and you find that in, even in the midst of intense pressure, even life-threatening pressure, you don't shut down, close off, and lash out. You draw near to God, and you find a way in God's mercy to open up your heart to your fellow saints and to practice the love of God and neighbor together. And that's verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, which I think is a beautiful phrase. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Uh, you can see that the unity and togetherness that the Spirit used these devotional practices to create there. And you can see the, the love there, especially in that word common. And I, and I mentioned this back when we talked to chapter 2, verse, 20, or verse 44, uh, that the word translated common there is not an economic term, it's a theological term. Uh, the word is used to translate the Hebrew word clean. And just to remind you, when something is clean, it means it's something that God can receive from you and use for you in your life to bless you with greater unity, greater communion, and a deeper experience of God himself, both in, in, uh, in immediately with you and God and also through God as he exists among his people. Uh, so what you see here is as the church was experiencing pressure, they treated each other and their possessions as something which God could receive from them and then use to bless them in their life together. Now, maybe that doesn't sound too amazing to you, but have you ever heard someone say, I don't want their help. Uh, I'll take help, but I don't want it from them. Why? Well, because you're talking about them like they're unclean, right? They are not someone that I want God to receive or that I want Jesus to use to help me. 
Uh, I think it's very easy to imagine a Roman soldier saying that about help delivered by the apostle Simon the Zealot, right? The guy who before coming to Jesus maybe participated in terrorist plots that might have murdered some of his friends. I don't want his help. Uh, it's very easy to see a poor Jewish widow say that about a Roman soldier who maybe took her son into slavery because she couldn't pay taxes to Caesar, which was not uncommon. I don't want his money. It's very easy to see a wealthy, healthy person reject a loaf of bread passed to them from uh, dirty, diseased hands. Right? I don't want that from them, from him, from that kind of person. Uh, I know we, we've talked about this before, but we need to see this again, that the devotional life of this church taught them how to actually love their neighbor, how to actually hold each other in common, how to welcome each other into their lives and to regard their fellow saints as washed by Jesus and clean and useful to Jesus to bring his blessings into their life together. To take enemies and people who are in antagonistic to each other and have pasts and histories and bring them together in actual deeds of love and hospitality and welcome. And because Jesus did that, because that happened, Jesus did two things then as a result in verse 33. He blessed the apostles with great preaching power, and he blessed the church with great grace. And uh, I, I want to focus on that phrase, great grace. But let me just say this about the apostles' preaching power. Uh, because power there describes the impact of the apostles' preaching, I don't think miracles are actually in mind there, though obviously they were doing them on occasion. But no, I think the, the fact that the power refers to the impact of preaching means that when people heard their testimony, their witness about Jesus, they were moved by it, and they repented, and they believed, or at least they went home and they thought deeply about it. There was something unsettling in a godly way in their heart that wanted them to either find a way to be founded on Jesus or were wondering how they could find a way to rest in the hands of Christ. And I just want, uh, I, I just want to say, I firmly believe that uh, Jesus wants people to be in a healthy church. He wants them to be in a place where they can be drawn into a healthy church culture that teaches them a, a rule of life and a devotional practices and a way of living that uh, sanctifies them and transforms them into the image of Jesus. And this church here in Acts is doing that amidst of lots of pressure and, and struggle. And so God is blessing them by bringing people into this healthy church context. Uh, now that said, let's look at the phrase at the end of verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. What does that mean? Uh, in the Bible and in Luke's writings, especially, the word grace can have a bunch of different meanings. Grace can mean God's saving power. That's the way we usually use it. Grace can also mean God's gift of wisdom. It can also mean God's gift of financial means. And given the fact that this whole story is about selling property to meet needs, I take the phrase great grace to mean that Jesus provided powerfully for the financial needs of his people. Meaning that as Jesus was transforming this community relationally, as he taught them how to uh, work at living together in love with all of their baggage and all of their struggles and all of their history, as Jesus did that, 
he was also transforming it financially into a community that met the needs of every person in the church. He was turning them into a community that said, yes, I am my brother's keeper. And you can see that especially in verses 34 to 35. This is a beautiful phrase. There was not a needy person among them, verse 34, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, for us, uh, land ownership is super common. Uh, many, many people here own houses and property, or we know people own property. Uh, it was incredibly uncommon in the time of Acts. And when we're told that uh, owners of lands or houses sold them, they are not selling uh, the home they lived in or the land that they farmed for their own food. They are selling what we would call investment proper properties. Uh, these were kitores, landed gentry, property investors. And what happened was they saw their brothers and sisters living quite literally hand to mouth. And they said, Jesus has taught me I am my brother's keeper. You will not starve. You will not be homeless. I will sacrifice my own investments to keep you whole and fed and here with us and welcomed by this community of Jesus. And they did that because they wanted to serve Jesus. Uh, the word translated as brought is normally used for bringing a sacrifice or an offering in worship. And so what they're doing here is they are bringing an offering to Jesus they are laying it at the apostles' feet so that in Jesus' name, they could make sure that the whole church, even people they did not like, were cared for and were provided for because they're part of God's family. Uh, why did they do this? Uh, there are so many passages that we could go to in the Old Testament to explain where they got this devotional practice from. Uh, but the most obvious one to go to, for me at least, is Deuteronomy 15, and that's the one I see echoing here most powerfully. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize it. I'm not going to read it, but, but you should read it. Uh, it's a good thing to do. You, have, you probably have three minutes today to read Deuteronomy 15. So go home and read Deuteronomy 15 uh, after service. Uh, so in Deuteronomy 15, Jesus uh, is commanding Israel. He's commanding Israel. He's commanding his people to meet each other's needs, to lend to the poor, and every seven years to cancel debts, set the slaves free, let them go with enough provision for them to start their own life. It's an incredibly powerful passage of generosity and mercy and grace. And part of what makes it so powerful is uh, at the very beginning of the passage, Jesus tells Israel, and I quote, there shall be no poor among you. Uh, this is Israel, right? This is the people of God. You can hear the, the phrase echoed there in our passage, there was not a needy person among them. There shall be no poor among you. Uh, you need to make sure that there are no poor, no starving, no homeless people in Israel. There shall be no poor among you. That's the very beginning of Deuteronomy 15. But at the end of Deuteronomy 15, Jesus says this, but there will always be poor among you. There will never be a time when I will allow Israel to exist without the poor and the needy. So how can both of these things be true? There shall be no, more, no poor among you. There will always be poor among you. 
Because in between those two statements are the commands to lend and give and cancel and set free. And all of those commands are summarized by this incredibly beautiful statement. You shall open your hand wide to your brother and your sister. And you shall lend to them or give to them freely. It's such a, a picturesque phrase, right? You shall open your hand wide. You're not to clench your fist. You're to open it wide in generosity. And it describes what the church was doing here in Acts so well. They were opening their hands wide to each other. And in doing that, they were entering into the work of Jesus himself, who maintains, Deuteronomy 15 tells us, the poor in the church, so that we can learn together the open-handed generosity of Jesus. But it's not just that. In Deuteronomy 15, Jesus is creating a community where his people receive in order to give, in order to receive from each other, in order to give to each other. To go back to the earlier in the sermon, it's a clean community, right? It's a community where we give and receive and give and receive to each other with open hands as gifts of God. And I think it's that obedience that brought Barnabas into the church. If you look at verse 36, you read this. He says, thus, or because of this, because of this kind of community, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. So, kids, that means his nickname was uh, encouraging dude. Son of encouragement, you could probably colloquially today. Encouraging homeboy. That brings you up to the 80s? Whatever today would be. Uh, by, uh, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite. A native of Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And just to point out a couple of things, uh, Levites were either priests or they were temple workers. Uh, Levites were explicitly called by God in the Old Testament, uh, in Leviticus, uh, to teach Israel how to give with open hands and how to care for the needy in Israel. That's their job. Barnabas sees the church doing his job. And through this practice and through the witness of the apostles, Barnabas recognizes in their love for each other, in their sacrificial hospitality, he recognizes in Jesus, the God who they're preaching, the God he has been worshiping since he was nine months in the womb. Hey, I know that God. That's the God I've been worshiping. He's obviously evident in Jesus, and I can see his presence in his people as they live like the God I have been worshiping lives in the Bible, he sees all of this and he comes to the church and he says, I'm also my brother's keeper. You are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm believing in Jesus. He is my Messiah. And he joins the body. And he sells an investment property of his own so that he can walk with Jesus as the keeper, the protector, the helper of his brothers and sisters. Uh, but as beautiful as that was, not everyone was as excited about it as Barnabas was. Now would be Ananias and Sapphira. And now we're on our third point, the judgment of no. Uh, and while this is a much longer story, uh, there's a lot more energy uh, here. It's much more sort of interesting to read. Uh, I don't think there's quite as much to unpack as before, so I'm going to keep my reflections here fairly brief. 
Uh, in chapter 5, 1 through 2, we're presented with a couple that doesn't come to Jesus, does not come to Jesus with wide open hands. Uh, but a man named Ananias, verse 1, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Uh, I think most of us struggle with this story because almost all translations say that Ananias and Sapphira kept back a part of the profits for themselves, which makes it sound like they decide to do what we do when we get like an inheritance or something. We give some to the church, we use some to pay off bills, maybe have a little fun. Uh, saying they kept it back, saying they kept back part of the money makes it sound like the problem was not turning over all their extra money that they happen to have in their bank to Jesus. Uh, but that is viewing their offering as equivalent to something like our regular ties on our income. This is not that. This offering is different. It was literally an offering that was made in order to keep people alive, housed, and whole. This offering was keeping God's command that there would be no poor among you. And so to help, help us see that, let's translate it this way. They didn't keep it back. They stole it. They stole it from God. And in fact, that word is actually used one other time in the Bible to describe when Achan stole gold from God after the Battle of Jericho. In the Battle of Jericho, God had said everything in there, all the wealth of Jericho is mine, and it was going to be used by God to pro promote and protect his people's worship and their life. Achan took the gold, some of the gold that was set aside, to bless his people's worship and to bless their needs for himself. He stole it. So when we read this story, it is not about complex economic decisions. It's not about tithing in general. It's about stealing from God as he uses our gifts to help his needy people. And now I realize we're getting kind of long on time, so let me try and put a, put a bow on this. Uh, given everything we've said uh, about uh, the church holding everything in common, God's word calling us to open our hands wide to meet the needs of his people and to join him in, in caring for them. What you can see Ananias and Sapphira doing here is saying, no, no. Uh, they didn't want to open their hands wide to their fellow saints. Why? We don't know. Uh, did they not trust Jesus to take care of their needs? Was there some fear that if they gave up all of the money of this, they wouldn't be provided for? That's possible. I mean, that's certainly possible. It's a, it's a way to read the text. Uh, or maybe, uh, and I actually think this is maybe a better way, given the emphasis on holding everything in common, maybe they lied because they wanted to help some people in the church, but not all the people in the church. Maybe the setup in the Apostles' Day was, hey, the first thousand dollars goes to widows, but the next thousand goes to injured soldiers. Uh, widows, yes. Roman soldiers, no. Orphans, yes. Laid off folk, no. That's possible. And we can maybe hear in our hearts an echo of something like that too. Maybe there are groups of people or classes of people within the church that we struggle to help. Maybe that is how we understand ourselves and Ananias and Sapphira's place here in this text. But regardless of the reason, the fact is that while appearing to obey Jesus outwardly, they were actually obviously harboring some kind of hatred or destruction in their hearts. 
And what happens here reminds me of Malachi 3, uh, where God tells Israel, as we said at the very beginning of the service, that they were robbing him of their offerings. And as a consequence, the poor and needy were going hungry and God's people were becoming, as they were discipled into this through their lack of giving, more hard-hearted, more hateful of each other, more bitter towards God and towards their neighbor, the very opposite of the kind of loving, generous, grateful people that Jesus was calling them to mature into. Saying no to being your brother's keeper is also as transformative for you and for us as the church as saying, yes, I will. And that's why Peter essentially tells Ananias in verses three through four, uh, if you couldn't do this in faith and with love, then you shouldn't have even tried. Uh, No one forced you to do this. No, you chose to do this. You chose to offer worship to God that outwardly appears helpful, but is inwardly destructive for you and is actually harmful to your fellow saints. You have not lied to men, but to God. And then God does something very surprising, doesn't he? Uh, He causes Ananias and three hours later, Sapphira to fall down and breathe their last. They they die. Uh, Now on this, we need to be careful here. This is true of a lot of characters in the Bible. We need to be careful here not to think that Ananias and Sapphira died and went to hell. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira are part of a church. Christians sin. Uh, Sometimes we sin grievously. Uh, And their punishment, which Jesus clearly meant as an example to the entire church, doesn't mean that they weren't actually Christians or that they aren't in heaven. Uh, To move from God's discipline to certainty about God's damnation is not a move Jesus has authorized us to make. You and I do not look into the Lamb's book of life. We do not know. Just like moving from seeing suffering in someone's life to being sure their suffering was caused by their sin is a move that Jesus warns us against making frequently in Scripture. You might remember the apostles asked Jesus, why is this man sick? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus says, no, but so that God's grace may be displayed. And by the way, given Deuteronomy 15, there will always be poor among you, or there, there should be no poor among you, there will always be poor among you, Sometimes God creates a context in people's lives so that they can participate in this this virtuous cycle of giving and receiving and giving and receiving and mature together as the church. It can be a gift too. Keeping that in mind will protect us from undue fear and also against undue pride. Uh, Now that said, in the Old Testament, the punishment for stealing from people was not death. But the punishment for stealing from God was Ananias and Sapphira are put to death because they stole from God. Now, maybe that's confusing uh, because this money wasn't really for God, right? It was for the needy in the church. So why did Ananias and Sapphira die for stealing from God? Two reasons, quickly. The first is God walks so closely with his people, especially when we are suffering, that to attack them or hurt them is to attack God and to attempt to hurt God himself. In fact, later on in Acts, when Jesus confronts Saul about his persecution of the church and jailing and murder, he'll say, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
right? Jesus is in heaven. Paul, Saul is persecuting his people on earth. But Jesus identifies, he walks so closely with his people and their suffering and heartache that when they are persecuted, he is persecuted. When they are stolen from, he is stolen from. To steal help from God's people is to effectively try and steal help from God himself. That's one reason. Here's another. Uh, Jesus has created and is building up a community where our help of the needy is so closely tied to his help that the two are basically inseparable and are meant to be nearly indistinguishable. Uh, It's supposed to be as though God's wide open hand were gloved by us as he provides for his people. I think Jesus holds these two things together so beautifully in his sermon uh, in Matthew where he says, if you give a cup of cold water to the least of these, you've given it to me. Right? And what you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. And so Jesus acts here at a time of incredible pressure and temptation and transition, really, to make it very clear that he will protect not only the poor and needy in his church, but also the practice of giving with wide open hands. Uh, Jesus will preserve his people's yes when they are asked to be their brother's keeper. And he will not stand idly by if we turn our yes into a no. And on that note, let's close by going back quickly to that last phrase, great grace was upon them. I think that phrase has more than one meaning in our passage. It definitely has the meaning of financial means. It also has the meaning of a good reputation. When people like Barnabas and the crowds and the Romans, when they saw the church opening wide their hands to the needy in their community, sacrificing to meet the needs of someone who maybe harmed their family in the past, they are moved to respect that community and to wonder, like, where on earth does this come from? And then the church can say it doesn't come from earth, it comes from heaven, it comes from God. Who else could do this but for but Jesus? What power on earth except the Holy Spirit can produce this kind of actual care and love on earth among enemies? See, Jesus preserves our yes by drawing people to the power of his grace, uh, which that care reveals. As As the world sees us loving each other, sacrificially meeting each other's needs, They are drawn to the grace of God that is revealed in those actions. Uh, My friends, Jesus is inviting us into this transformative practice of actually caring for each other's needs by opening our hands wide and giving and receiving and giving and receiving God's gifts within us, to us and for us with joy. And so my question is, what if we live that way? What if we lived as those who believe that if we give to our brothers and sisters in need, we're actually giving to Jesus? What if we took Jesus' words seriously? Uh, What if we lived as those who believe that Jesus cares for the needy through us, that we get to be uh, the gloved hand of Christ, giving them his mercy? Uh, What if we gave as those who knew that by giving and receiving, we are brought into the joyful unity of Christ's body? What if we received in our need as those who knew that we were not getting a hand out but a 
gift of God's own mercy, a demonstration of his love to us. What if we all learned how to truly and practically hold each other in common and be clean together? Uh, Beloved, these things are learned by prayerful doing. Uh, So let's prayerfully do them. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for walking so closely with us that when we suffer, you suffer. And that when we bless each other, we are honored to bless you as well. Please help us to take the obligation to be our brother's keeper seriously. Help us to support each other physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And please also continue maturing us in the Lord uh, so that uh, when we face the pressures of this world, we would respond by turning toward you and by working through your grace to open our hearts to one another in love, even as Jesus did for us under the incredible and infinitely intense pressure of the cross. And we ask this all in his name because of what he's done for us. Amen.